Hello everyone, this is Marcus Jefferson here with the What is Opera Anyway podcast, a podcast where we explore all things opera to truly find out what is opera anyway. My guest today is Tyler Boak, a rising baritone, educator, and musicologist, originally from Detroit, Michigan. He holds a bachelor's degree from the New England Conservatory and is currently pursuing a master's in music research from the University of Huddersfield in the United Kingdom. In this episode, we dive into the history of modern and experimental opera and how that became what we see as modern opera today. Enjoy. Marcus, what's going on? Hey, it's nice to finally be speaking to you. Yeah, the same to you. I don't think we've ever had something to talk about like modern experimental mm. pieces. And so I think that would be really exciting for our audience to kind of like dive into what makes this topic like so special and like why it's so important to you. What's interesting about it is that for, for the sheer volume, of operatic modernism, um, which I mean, it's comparable to really any other time in opera history. Opera has never really slowed down, save really just for the world wars. Uh, but you know, there's so much of it to talk about. There's so much to cover and so much variety in it. For all of that, it's still a topic with which or over which we have relatively little grasp. Mm-hmm. There's, there's just so few well-crafted and, and uh, I guess accessible uh, entry points for people. Yeah, I mean it's very um, it's very intimidating in a way. I mean, yes. even as and you're a singer as well. Right. Um, I'm a singer. You know, it's to look at a piece of music or uh, a, a piece of work like um, like the Notte di Figaro. So right. like, you know, right. as a classical singer, it's like okay, this is. It's, you know, it's, it's difficult, but as with training, with classical right. training, I, I can approach this. I have know? a box for this, right? I have a place exactly, to put this in exactly. which I can conceptualize and understand exactly what I'm being asked to do. Exactly. And, but then when you get these kind of <laughs> pieces like, like Wozzeck and right. Lou oh, yeah. and, you know, all these pieces that, that are so, like, so far from outside such a rebellion from the standard. Mm-hmm. It's like really easy as a classically trained singer to be like, I, you know, I, I'm not one of those singers. I'm just right. not someone oh, yeah. who can do this. Absolutely. Um, which usually isn't the case, you know, it's just a different set of skills, you know what I mean? It, it is, and that's, I mean, that's the, what you, what you just said, right? Like, I'm not the person to do this. Or I don't have the skill set to do this. That I think is such an interesting assertion because, in reality, the composers, I mean, while they're not writing for, at least in my experience, they're rarely writing for just a pure classically trained sound. Mm-hmm. They're also not writing for somebody who can't do that or who doesn't know how to do that. But the composers I've found are really interested in uh, dynamic voices. So okay. people who can, you know, that is one facet of their training. Like I can sing. Giovanni like this. And that's how I sound singing Giovanni. But I can also do like, I can take that same sound, it's sort of the same singularity of a voice 
and flip it upside down and make these noises. It's still my body, it's still my voice, but the instrument's doing basically the opposite of what it was just doing. And that kind of, that ability to sort of flip mediums, flip sounds, flip spaces, really like metaphysical spaces within the body, that I think has become a really interesting possibility, but that's really daunting for a singer who's been trained to sing one way their whole life. Exactly. And I think it's so like to see a production of Bozek or Zulu or something mm. by Berg is it's very captivating because of the exploration of sound and of of the voice. Right. But, you know, beyond the classical uh, opera training. Absolutely. And this, I mean, that's what I think is so is so captivating, you know, it's a good word, captivating about Wozzeck and what, is, what has kept audiences so intrigued by it for so many years yeah. is that it's, it's this liminal space where we have the stylization of, of opera. You know, opera is a stylized art. There's a fabulous book by the Hutchians. They're a couple who live in Canada. She's a literary critic and he's a, uh, he's a, a, a doctor and they write about a lot about death and opera. So where disease, death, dying fit as a ritual. And they talk about our ability to sort of access our own mortality by the, the sort of stylization, the distance of opera. We know it's fake, but music allows us an emotional entryway into that concept without us having to actually encounter it personally. Mm. And I think Wozzeck is just the same thing, but on a more, I don't know, on a closer degree because of that strange boundary between singing and speech. Right, he blurs the lines just enough between what's not real and what could be real. Uh, and knowing, of course, that Wozzeck is a real story, right? That's a real person yeah. who existed yeah. in history. We get this, this even closer sort of like fuzzy touch of, of that brutalism, of that trauma. Yeah. And it's rare that you go to a performance that people don't cry at the end. Yeah, it's it's so like emotionally engaging. I think, like we said, because it's so like outside of this um, suspension of like disbelief. Yeah, you know what absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, before you dive in more into votes, like, yeah. I want to kind of get to know uh, how you kind of got into this <laughs> idea of this topic of experimental opera and modern modernity within opera yeah. in, your, in your research? And... Um, it's, a, it's an excellent question. I, I was very lucky uh, growing up in Detroit to have sort of phenomenal access to opera. Uh, Suzanne Acton, Diana Hoshello run Michigan Opera Theater Children's Chorus. So mm -hmm. as a 10 year old, I was singing in Pagliacci and Bohem and Carmen Brana. Um, in these, you know, these stage productions of really immense operas. And I just absolutely fell in love with opera as a space, as a, uh, as a way of working out and playing out uh, these, these stories, these emotions. Uh, but as I sort of, as I grew up, as I grew out of elementary school and into, into high school, I was sort of increasingly disillusioned with opera because it was, it was just something I couldn't relate to. The stories were too distant. The music was too antiquated. Um, it wasn't cool enough, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. like it, it it had this this distance to it that I couldn't I couldn't reach over that boundary. Uh, I couldn't find myself in it. And so for for several years, I kind of stopped going uh, to the opera regularly just because it wasn't uh, I don't know, it didn't feel like like a comfortable space. 
until I think 2015 or 16, Detroit was one of five opera houses that did the tour of Mieczysław Weinberg's uh, Die Passagierin, The Passenger, mm -hmm. uh, which if you don't know that work, it's a gorgeous work from 1968. Uh, Weinberg was a Polish Jew who lost all of his family in the Holocaust and was rescued from the doctor's plot uh, to Moscow by Shostakovich, who wrote it to, to the leaders of the Soviet Union on his behalf and said, listen, this is not somebody that you want to persecute. Like, we will take him. Um, and so when he went to Moscow, he read a novel by Zofia Pozmish, the Polish author, uh, about a woman, German woman, traveling from Berlin to Brazil after the war with her husband, who, unbeknownst to him, she was an SS overseer in Auschwitz. And on the cruise liner taking her to, to Brazil, uh, sees a woman that she knows she had killed in the camp and immediately begins having flashbacks to their interactions, their sort of strange relationship. And the opera begins with this enormous quintuplet in the timpani. It's just this sort of eruption of noise and of pain and of anger on like on both the composers and history's behalf. And I remember that opera beginning in like gripping the sides of my chair thinking, pardon my French, like, holy shit, this is an opera that, that speaks to me in my time now. I, I, it's, it's not this sort of stylized like myth or um, play on um, social roles or money or love. This is about generational trauma. This is about brutality. This is about this, is about this century. This is about our time. Yeah. Um, and you know, now where, where, where I am in my sort of you know, musical path, uh, Weinberg is a relatively conservative composer for what I tend to, to, to dabble in. But that opera was my introduction to what it meant to write opera that was distinctly both about and within the 20th and yeah. 21st century, sonically yeah. and narratively. Yeah, and I think like there's sometimes this argument with um, more traditional opera companies uh, about how you know these these operas were written you know hundreds of years ago, but they're still relevant. And I think the only relevant thing about you know a Puccini opera is that you know it sounds it's sonically pleasing, but right. like contextually there really isn't that much right. of a connection to you know the times we're living in right now and i mean there are there are people who will attempt to and have done great jobs there's a detroit company called opera moto which is a lot of this work mm -hmm. they take you know things like chernamentula or bohem and they update them into you know like they're, i think they're doing a uh, they're doing a magic flute right now set in nintendo world so in like yeah. with, with the characters of super mario characters which i think is a really amazing and interesting way of taking these stories and changing their changing their dress to match where we are and what what sort of fills our cultural zeitgeist mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't get away from the fact that you have to fundamentally change the opera's nature to make it relevant exactly right you have to change yeah. the characters uh, they are in many ways products of their time which is a beautiful thing and i think it's mm -hmm. amazing to like to go and watch Notte de figaro and say, and, and to read the classroom that goes on and mm -hmm. to read the brilliance of like of Mozart's control of human emotions and their interactions, it's such an amazing experience. But you also kind of have to be an opera lover to get that. You have to know exactly. what Mozart is. Mozart is opera for opera lovers now. Exactly. And, it's, and that's a way of, of 
it's a type of inaccessibility yeah. um, for, uh, for opera because if you know if you have to know these specific um, Mozartian things to get <laughs> any of the jokes or any of the things that are going on but right. it's like that's not really fun for people who aren't no, it's not. experts on Mozart you know um, and you know the same the same can be said in many ways for Wagner it's curious okay. I think the the longevity of Puccini is interesting there's this amazing book uh, from the late 50s uh, called Opera as Drama by Joseph Kerman. Uh, Kerman was sort of one of the leading musicologists who began the resurgent interest in opera for American musicology uh, into the 60s and 70s. Uh, but in it, he absolutely rails on Tosca. Spends mm -hmm. most of the book complaining about that's the fact that Tosca is included in uh, the National Repertory because he doesn't see why it should be. Uh, and largely because he does not see Puccini as a dramatist. He sees him as a mood painter. You know, yeah. he, gets the mood, he gets the emotion, he gets the tune. Yeah. And the contemporary American audience loves it. But yeah. for the Verity, there's none of this sort of like uh, cerebral, uh, dramatic or careful dramatic handling. Yeah. Underpins a, uh, um, an, an Otello, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's so fascinating to me because so many contemporary audiences and houses just love Puccini. And I get it because mm -hmm. it is so beautiful and poignant, but it doesn't require any significant deep. Yeah. It's, no? it's in, a, in a way, it is, in a way, Puccini is accessible. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it's accessible in the, in the, um, in the way that, it's accessible emotionally and musically. So it's, it's almost like going to a symphony and then there just happen to be people on stage. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think of it also like in the way that sitcoms are accessible. Exactly. You know, like you walk in and you know what you're getting. Exactly. You know, like, like whether it's Emily in Paris or The Big Bang Theory or Friends, like it's gonna be contained. It's going to be relatively emotionally direct. It's going to be accessible it's going to have things I already know inside it. Yeah. Uh, and that that's, I mean, this is where Kerman, I think, gets it wrong. That's a thing that cultures need, particularly mm -hmm. post-war cultures or like war-stricken cultures, right? Exactly. You know, now, like, we need a space of reconciliation, of beauty, of simplicity, and that does not make Puccini less of a cultural asset for not being yeah. of, of Wagner. Yeah. Uh, but... I think it is telling in our time of like instant gratification and uh, uh, sort of immediate emotional reaction that Puccini is our most performed composer. Yeah, I think like at this time and at this point in history um, with all of the emotional development that society has had to do, mm -hmm. I think that there's so much more room now to challenge to challenge people, to challenge people's expectations and why we do need more um, experimental operas, which uh, will be, you know, the sound of our generation of right. opera. Right. You know, I think we, we need to push more of that type of work, yeah. uh, that type of challenging work into, into the canon totally. in order to kind of, you know, again, like there's a space for Puccini, there's a space for just emotional, response but like I, I think like 
in terms of the art form, mm -hmm. I think it needs to be pushed. The boundary has to be pushed further. And we were, I feel like we were doing that in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And then I, everything, I, I, I mean, I wasn't, you know, we weren't alive then, but, <laughs> but um, as far as I know, um, like in the 90s and 2000s, everything kind of, well, maybe you can speak more on, yeah, more on I, like I, historical context, but. I, I know what you're getting. And it, so I, I'm gonna split this into sort of two, two tangents. Um, and the one is the word experimental, which I think is such a strange effervescent, mm -hmm. you know, like floating idea, like what is, ex what, what's experimental opera? Um, and for me, this, you know, this goes back a little bit to Wozzeck, but I, I try and, you know, I'll preface this with this. I try to avoid the words modern, contemporary, experimental, because different people meet, take them to mean different things and all of them try to pigeonhole something. My, my, my boyfriend likes to call what I do new wave, which I really <laughs> He's like, it's just new wave. I'm like, okay, I'll take it. Um, but, you know, if we think about, we think about opera after World War II, but also opera after Wozzeck, as after 1925, experimental, uh, we largely take to mean undoing or dehierarchizing the accepted syntaxes of opera. So what do I mean by that? Uh, opera, like any art form, is a syntactic genre um, and falls at the intersection of four separate syntaxes, right? Drama, text, music, mise-en-scene, staging, so visual. All of those things need to coalesce in their own syntactic way to make what we consider to be opera. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's changed with every century, with every 50 years, right? Like the fact that Wagner and Monteverdi can occupy the same genre doesn't in theory work. Opera's just has changed so drastically over the, you know, over its 400 year history that we can call Popea and the Ring opera okay. and not really bad an eye. Uh, but a lot of that, even between there's the distance between those two composers, it's it's still the accepted syntax of music as drama, not music as as programming a story, right? As representing what's otherwise worldly sounds, but this kind of this strange floating sort of golden orb of possibility in which. Oh, it's a, it's a good example. Um, you know, in, in, in Magic Flute, where Papageno's voice can become a glockenspiel. Uh -huh. And it doesn't necessarily mean one thing or another. It's not, oh, this means that he is. What it does is the music sort of underpins the existence of drama, the, the body of drama, uh, in a way that just reading the text or just walking through the staging doesn't do. The music is the fundamental dramatic vehicle for those kinds of transformations, those, those emotions, those interactions. It's, uh, Carolyn Abate calls it the amniotic fluid in which the, the uh, characters swim. Uh, so between Monteverdi and Wagner, that's largely left in place. We know that intersection. We know that there's a story with a text and that a composer writes music, which then brings the drama alive. And I think what we tend to believe or call experimental uh, is a questioning of the 
logic, of the independence, of the congruence of those four syntaxes. So take Wozzeck, right? With it, there is, there's a story with a text that based largely follows from A to B. But the original play, the Büchner play, is not a narrative sequence. It's a collection of, I think, 24 unordered text fragments written on sort of the margins of papers. Mm -hmm. he, never, he never wrote them as scene one, scene two, scene three, act one, act two. It's just an unordered collection of papers. Yeah. Baird then takes those and bring, breaks them down into 15, orders them into a largely narrative sequence that's never presented to be chronological. You know, act one, scene two is not necessarily before or after act two, scene one. We don't know that. We just assume so because it's presented in a linear fashion. But then underneath those, the music has its own structural integrity. And we can talk about, you know, sonata form in Mozart operas as being sort of indicative of a dramatic change in the character. You know, there are all those things. But every scene in that opera is organized around another formal principle. It almost exists independently. It is this kind of like driving brutalism in which Wozzeck is trapped. There's no like, oh, Wozzeck's at the center of the drama. The music is emanating around him. No, no, no. the music is destroying Wozzeck, sort of with every, with every turn. It's, you know, it's, it's allowing Marie to float and then it's hurling her back into the ground, you know, as she sort of grapples with her own guilt and grief. Uh, these are characters who are caught in music, who have really no control over the music that, that fills their bodies. Uh, and that, I think, that challenging of those four syntaxes. That we tend to think of as modern, as experimental. And so you can look at a, a Nono, Prometeo, which is his last opera. He calls it, he doesn't call it an opera. He calls it a tra tragedia della sciolta, tragedy of listening. Uh -huh. uh, but singers, instrumentalists, all of these performers are placed within the same space. It was this enormous stone amphitheater that he wrote it for. And there's no narrative text. There's just collections of texts of, sort of related to or you know, tangentially connected to the Prometheus myth. Uh, singers, again, around the space with no characters, just a soprano, a tenor here, a chorus here. And all of these sounds coalesce in the space to kind of create a site of access, a point in which all of these layers of history, of myth, of identity can simultaneously be invoked. And all of a sudden, all these ghosts are operating in the same space. It's an opera, yeah, but it fundamentally undermines or reimagines re those four syntaxes. They're still present. They have coalesced in a really beautiful space, but it's not the same one that Mozart filmed. Yeah. And so I think when we talk about experimentalism, long story short, <laughs> that I think is what we're getting at. Yeah. The, the specific experimentalism that you're talking about, right, 60s, 70s, 80s, that's, a, uh, that's largely the product of Darmstadt, right? Mm. Much of, much of mid-century modernism is born, raised, reared uh, in the Darmstadt school. And Nono actually is the first of the Darmstadt composers to return to opera. In 1961, we have uh, Intolerance in 1960, which is written for Teatro La Fenice in Venice. Um, and it was, it was a scandal, of course, as they were prone to be at that time. Uh, but he was the first of that school to say, okay, we can return to this genre. We can look at this again. Because for a long time, uh, it was viewed as the, as the aristocracy's art, right? Wagner was a rich man's, a bourgeois art. 
Um, and these were composers who were radically against um, organized government, uh, militant government, particularly, you know, in the, the sort of aftermath of World War II. Uh, and there's the famous quote by Pierre Boulez, right, who said, you know, opera houses burn them down. Mm. Opera was, was a space meant for the rich, meant for the wealthy, meant for their enjoyment. It did tailor things to what the, the political leaders liked, the recensures, you know, that was not the art of Darmstadt. So when Darmstadt began returning to opera, and this I think is what we tend to think of as like the, the sort of absurd experimentalism of this era, it was very much with a radicalist upheaval mindset. Uh, so you get things like Ligeti's Le Grand Macabre, which you know, we've all sort of seen the video of Barbara Hannigan singing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's, that's the iconic sort of sequence from it. But Ligeti only wrote one opera. This was, and this was the thing. Composers would live their lives, would write quote unquote serious music, their concert music. And then they'd get asked to write an opera, they'd think about it for a while and they finally say, yeah, I'll do it, but you have to let me undermine it. Mm. And so for a while, there was really an attempt to bury opera into the ground. Right, to, to look at it with a very cynical eye. Uh, only a select few composers of that era returned to it again and again. Nono wrote three, Barrio wrote three, but again, Barrio wrote a work like the, the opera's called Opera, and it's the staging of an opera inside an opera, and there's people in the audience, you know, he's got this piece Passaggio where there's he's got like notated hecklers in the audience who are calling out you know, on stage. And you know, like there's an attempt to undermine the very space in which opera would, was supposed to was supposed to operate, was supposed to Yeah. So it's like an act of rebellion. Right. Yeah. And that lasts really through the 80s. Um, you know, I think the sort of the greatest um, the, the greatest iteration of this is Stockhausen. Everybody talks about Licht largely because it is too large to talk about, mm. right? A seven day opera in which helicopters carry string quartets around the opera house and you know, you're invoking the entire myth of creation, but from Stockhausen's perspective and also good and evil. And it takes enormous forces and it's you know hugely constructed and it took 25 years, you know, all of these things, but it was Stockhausen's only opera. Mm -hmm. right? I will write one and it'll be the biggest one of all time. And it's gonna be the best one, and yeah. It's the best one and not, not bury it into the ground. Right, and there'll there'll be no opera after mine. Hmm. That was that was the mindset. Opera had to be this uh, this radical uh, reformist space. Um, so when, when we tend to think about experimentalism, I think that's what we go to. But hmm. right around uh, 1989, 1990, there's a great book by Tim Rutherford Johnson called Music After the Fall, where he writes about experimental music after the fall of the Berlin Wall, which is 1989. And I think that's a really useful date. Um, composers begin as, as musical styles change as, as the idea of the like purely radical sort of antagonistic composer is an outdated one, is the one of their teachers. Mm -hmm. Composers begin to see theater not as this grand bourgeois space that has to be kicked in the shins, but as a possibility for returned engagement, as a space to play out metaphysical transformation, literary criticism to play out uh, ritual and the sacred. And so the early iterations of this are in the late seventies, you see uh, Salvatore Sciarino, who's still alive in Italy and Georges Apergis, who's in France. They write their first operas within six months of each other. 
and Shirino goes on to write 12, uh, no, 12 or 13 operas. Apergis writes eight or nine, and they're both still writing, but they return over and over again. Uh, Harrison Burtwistle in, in Britain writes in a piece for Aldeber, I think in 68, uh, that really pisses off Benjamin Britten, but then he returns to the genre seven, eight, nine more times. Uh, the, the sort of, the generation after those, the radical reformists, takes what their teachers said and said, okay, you burnt the thing to the ground. Standing in the ashes, what kind of ghosts are still present here that we can find? Mm. And I think that's where, that's where opera has begun to, to go. Uh, and a lot of composers who I, who I work with, who I know, who are still writing opera, Haya Chernowin at Harvard, Lisa Lim, uh, who was in Sydney, uh, David Friedrich Haas at Columbia. These composers have found uh, ways of returning to opera over and over again uh, as a way to tease out problems in their musical vocabularies, ideas of what theater can be, uh, you know, walking away from the aftermath of, of the generation before. So there, there's my very, 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 very long feel on you know, what, what does experimentalism mean and sort of the, the generations that have taken that mantle. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think just to sum up, I think what you're saying is, you know, there was this idea of what opera had to be. And then there, at some point, people, uh, composers were kind of sick of living in this box. And so they broke the box and they mm -hmm. burned it to the ground mm -hmm. to try to find a new sound that would, that would do the same thing the opera was intended to do. Right. Which... And by the same thing, I mean, the same thing is not just communicating stories. There are amazing composers who, who are doing this. George Benjamin, Kaya Sariajo, Thomas Adams, mm -hmm. right? These are composers who are again and again telling new stories for opera, finding new ways of creating spaces in which stories can be told that sort of transcend generations. This is the, this was always the goal. I mean, this is why we still watch L'Orfeo or Papea, right? Mm -hmm. Those stories, those spaces still speak to us through generations. But there are also composers who are doing the same thing that Algorfeo does, but getting rid of the story. Yeah. Saying, I want the space. I want the sort of the really beautiful theatrical possibility of invoking myth and human identity and cognition um, and, sort of, and psyche. But I don't want to have to tell a story when I do it. I don't want yeah, to be the BBC. Right. Not as it's not as linear as we right. expect it to be, which is yeah. you know that's also but that's also like a form of storytelling is yeah. this and, kind of ephemeral space. Yeah, you know? and Netflix has gotten really good at this. You know, mm -hmm. like nonlinear storytelling has has become sort of the the premise of television. Yeah, uh, we we this generation now is much more accustomed to conceptual narration, nonlinear narration. Um, you know, conceptual spatial works in general than the generation before. Yeah. So exposed to it. Yeah, I think with, you know, with the invention of just modern television and, mm -hmm. and movies and we don't, we're not expected, we're not expecting everything to be point A, point B, you yeah. know. And honestly, like that is the best type of storytelling. And when you think about, you know, like, like a mystery or a murder mystery or something like that, they're always telling the story from like back to front, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? They're telling it backwards and upside down and 
and that's what makes it i think that's what makes it interesting is the non-linear of the storytelling absolutely abstract right and there were some really i think in the last god 40 50 years distinctly um every no we can say we can say after after the war after the second world war style became right or style was recognized so musical style in air was recognized as a result of of bourgeois sensibility right you had to confine your music to the expectations of the well of the patrons who were paying for music right mozart couldn't have written about sec because people would never buy it people wouldn't like it so the idea of a sort of unified musical style of a romantic music of a classical music composers really realized was a result of fascism it was a fascist ideal and so every composer began to seek out sort of in the wake of of the what schoenberg called right the freeing of the tone right in the wake of serialism uh and atonality and then Lachenmann's introduction of sound and music everybody got the freedom to find their own style, their own sound. As a result, everybody also had to seek out unique modes of theater and storytelling that would match the syntaxes of their musical style. Uh-huh. Right. This is an example I've, I've used before, but an opera like Saint-François d'Azis, a Messiaen, would not work with Ligeti's music. Those two things aren't compatible because Messiaen found a very constructionist, high, like rigidly structured, uh, blocky kind of storytelling that matches his music. And Ligeti found a very sardonic, black humored, uh, frustrated opera in Le Grand Macabre that Messiaen couldn't have done. Right? Every composer seeks out a, a, a space in which to negotiate these syntaxes that is independent from one another. You know, we can talk about the sort of similarities between Handel operas and the operas of that time, right? They all kind of sound the same. The structures are really ingrained. You can pick up the way that Rossini could pick up numbers from one opera and put it in another and just place it in because it would work in the structure. It could continue on. Like, I don't need to rewrite this aria. I have it somewhere else. I'll just drop it in this opera, you know? Yeah. That wouldn't, that doesn't fly anymore, right? You can't do that with some of these operas, nor can you replace composer. You can't have a composer finish another composer's opera. Because it, you know, we we've seen that a little bit with Lulu, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a very specific. Like, I left all the sketches. I left all the the orchestration. Just finish it for me, you know. Um, so, you know, when you talk about storytelling, I think there's such a diversity in storytelling now, in modes of storytelling, in approaches to linearity, to nonlinearity, to conceptual spaces, to installations, that everyone is independent and individual to the uh, to the composer. Uh, and really idiosyncratic. And that's a that's a beautiful, diverse space that we are sort of privileged to live within because we get to experience all of these kind of possibilities without being bound by seeing the same type of story played out over and over again each night. Did you want to talk a little bit about your book? Yeah. 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 I'd love to. If it's Just right. as like a little... I don't, know, I don't know, is it in the process of being written or? It's, it's in writing now. I mean, I'm not publishing until 2025. Okay, cool. But the book is as an overview. Uh, you know, there, there have been several attempts 
to write histories of 20th century opera, which are always very interesting, which like what people choose, right? What's interesting to, to certain authors, how they categorize it. Everybody tends to try and organize it around basic principles like nationality or um, chronology. You know, these are sort of like accepted ways of just organizing because we don't know how to address these things, right? It's, it's so confusing and uh, distant from what opera was before that uh, the usual modes of, of organization don't really work. And so a lot of those books have sort of fallen by the wayside because there's no really good way of interrogating this subject. So my book looks at opera after Wozzeck. So opera 1925, December Berlin 1925 is the premiere of Wozzeck, which he finished in 2022 or 1922, but didn't premiere until 25. Uh, and it also it sort of examines Wozzeck with a constellation of operas surrounding it. Pérez et les Ondes, um, Salome, Bluebird's Castle, right? Uh, Lulu, I guess, is afterwards. But it, it's these, these collections of, of early operas that really lay the groundwork for the kind of experimentation and change that will come afterward. So mapping, and I use that word very intentionally because I like the idea of cartography, mapping a history of opera after 1925 that doesn't pretend to give everything or to give an overview or to, you know, to be a, just a reader's guide to all of the operas that you might see, because there's too many of them. I like mm -hmm. the idea of mapping as a sort of active subjective cartography, right? Any map reflects where the author stands in the middle of it. And to, to understand a really complex uh, organism you have to make a lot of different maps that show different parts of it. So mine is just one map and hopefully other people will make other maps, but it doesn't organize based on place of, of premiere or time of premiere, but I divide sort of a hundred years of history into six overarching concepts, ideas, possibilities, approaches to opera uh, that are not bound by history or by uh, or by state, and so we you know, really dive into like I have a chapter on strange theater, right? The kind of absurdist, destructionist mid-century opera that's born out of the uh, Antonin Artaud, uh, Alfred Jarry, Samuel Beckett's theater. Uh, this this radical upheaval of syntaxes with no attempt to make meaning. So there's a chapter on that. There's a chapter on opera as, as a site, a space, uh, a state of transformation or of invocation. There's a chapter on opera about opera, on meta-opera. Uh, you know, and that, a, a chapter like that can be both about Strauss and, you know, early Mozart. And it can also be about Bernhard Lang's Parzifal, which literally just mm -hmm. deconstructs Parzifal into cycles of repetitions, you know, yeah. like, I, it's an attempt to really encompass the the overarching themes and ideas behind opera as a genre that have shaped and uh, and guided this beautiful, strange, floating uh, experience that we all live within as opera. And it mediates all of those sort of blurred lines. Uh, in a, what I hope to be a really readable way. It's, uh, you know, it's a, I, as, a, as a queer man, it's very much rooted in my own identity with my voice, my body, my conception of history. Uh, 
you know, it's rooted in my, in my being as a singer, in my youth, in my own experience of this genre. And it's an attempt to convey that beauty to others and that complexity to others in what I hope is a really meaningful way. So that's my book. That's my feel. That's what I'm hoping to do. We'll, Amazing. Well, it sounds like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you have a very kind of fleshed out idea that will be, you know, digestible and relatable to someone. So I, I mean, so. I think, yeah, I'm definitely, we'll, we will be on the lookout in 2025 <laughs> yes. for your book. Um, and, but anyway. Yeah. Any, so, any, any questions, any I don't know, any ideas, any thoughts, anybody um, is welcome to re reach out to me. Like you, you guys are always welcome to reach back out. Anybody who listens to this is welcome to reach back out. Like I just, this is what I love and I'm just excited to communicate it to others. Of course, yeah. Um, so yeah, we've come to the, come to the end of the yeah. podcast. <laughs> and at the end of the podcast, we like to ask everyone, what is opera anyway? And this can be, this is a very open-ended question. Uh, I think of opera as a space, as a, as a site, and as a ritual, a really beautiful one in which we enter and stand amidst the ghosts of 400 years of politics and wars and humans and artists, uh, ideas, philosophies, sacred and, and secular, which have shaped, shaped, like fundamentally shaped humans. And, I, and as we enter that space, I think of it as a, as, a, as a space of possibility in which we stand on the floor and ghosts enter through our feet and take our mouths and use them as means of communication to speak across generations. Uh, opera is a, is a site of transformation for the singer, for the creator, for music, for the audience, as a joint ritual in which we all share. So that's what opera is anyway. Amazing. Well, <laughs> thank, you. thank you so much for um, this, this um, riveting conversation um, on, on your work and on opera and what it was, what it could be. Um, thank you. Yeah. Marcus, we'll, thank we'll, you. See, we'll see you soon. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to continuing to listen as a rapid listener to the podcast uh, and to, to being in touch more with you all soon. That was my conversation with Tyler Boak. For more information on him and his upcoming endeavors, including his book, you can catch him at tylerboak.com. That's T-Y-L-E-R-B-O-U-Q-U-E.com. Thanks for listening. The composer of our overture is Reagan Castile. You can hear more of her work at ReaganCastile.com. That's R-E-A-G-A-N-C-A-S-T-E-E-L.com. Our podcast logo was designed by Francesca Leonetta and Hannah Stokes. Our social media is done by Vina Akama-Makia. Our producers, technical directors, and editors are Jeremy Lopez and Noah Sessler. Our executive producer is Francesca Leonetta. I'm Marcus Jefferson, and this was What is Opera Anyway, the podcast. See you next time.